Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Our sermon text today is 1 Samuel chapter 14, the first 23 verses, and you can turn there if you have a Bible. We've had a couple of sermons now in a row, and the theme of those seem to be calls to us in times of difficulty and trial, fear and worry, tumultuous, tumultuous situations like the one we're in, to hope in God, to wait patiently for him and to walk humbly before him in simple obedience, dwelling, cultivating, repenting, trusting, living, loving, building, waiting. This is what the Lord declares to be a winning strategy. We all want to have a winning strategy. We want to have, be a, a part of something that we think is going to bring about change, hope, progress for Christian witness, for the worship and freedom of the church, for the health and prosperity of our families and of our land. We want to be a part of something that's going to be successful. We hope that that is possible. Well, God says these simple acts of obedience and faithfulness to him, you just do that, you wait on him, and he will bring it about. Here's what he said in Psalm 37 last week. We saw this. It says in verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. It's not easy to have faith for that. We see the enemies of God advancing. We see their power, their strength, feel the heat of their breath breathing down our neck. And we look around ourselves, we look at ourselves, we look at one another, we look at the state of the church, we look at the size of the church, we look at the influence of the church, and it's definitely been waning for a long time, and none of us are feeling particularly powerful. Weak, we are feeling weak. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling small. I feel like my team is small. If we have faith for reformation and change, a hope for the future, it's the hope of the long game. That's about all I've been able to manage a hope for in myself. I have hope for the long term. Maybe we plant some seeds today Maybe our children and grandchildren will water them and tend to them faithfully. And then maybe our great-grandchildren and so on will harvest, we'll see a harvest. There'll be good fruit. There'll be a time of peace and prosperity for the church. Way down the road. <laughs> and that may be what God intends for us. And if that's what he intends for us, let's learn to be content with what he's given us to do. But sometimes God brings about sudden changes, dramatic changes, reversals of fortune. That's something that happens. And I don't want us to fail to have hope and faith for that. He does that sometimes through very simple and humble, small things, people. And there's examples of this throughout history. There's examples in God's word of this. And I want to draw our attention today to one of the most dramatic 
reversals of fortune that I found in the scriptures. And I think it's a wonderful example to us right now in this church as we seek God, as we wait upon him, as we try to have hope for a future for ourselves, our families, and our ministry and our work. That, these, that God can really use small things. God can really do amazing, powerful things through small people who are willing to offer themselves to him in faith. There's an example of this in 1 Samuel 14, the account of Jonathan's astounding victory over the Philistines. Let's look at it together. Before we read our passage, though, I just want to set it up. This is the context that brings us to chapter 14. Chapter 13, which is just before it, we find there King Saul is newly crowned the king. So Israel has never had a king before, and God has chosen Saul. They, they clamored for a king, and God gave them Saul. Saul is new on the job. First king, early days of his reign. And he retains a standing army of 3,000 men. He keeps 2,000 for himself. He commands them. He gives 1,000 to the command of his son, Jonathan, the heir to the throne. What does Jonathan do with his 1,000 men? Well, probably under the direction of his father, uh, Jonathan goes and he pokes the hornet's nest of the Philistines. So right up the road, the Philistines are their neighbor, neighbors, but they have been basically troubling, invading, raiding in Israel for a long time. They, in fact, five and a half miles north of Jerusalem in a town called Geba, they have set up a garrison, a fortress. They, they keep a, a little standing army up there, just up the road from Jerusalem. One of the early acts of King Saul is to send his son Jonathan with a thousand men up the road to Geba and to attack, and he does so. And here's what we, it says in verse three of, of chapter 13 that Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. That means he, he beat them. He whooped them. And it says in the second half of that verse, the Philistines heard of it. So this is just a little, little bit of the Philistines. There's lots of Philistines everywhere else and they heard of it. And how do they respond? Uh, well, first, it says in verse 4 that the, the, uh, the Israelites also heard the news that Jonathan had, had beaten, but also that they heard that this had made them odious in the sight of the Philistines. So they were kind of thrilled and also suddenly getting the implication that this was not going to go well for them. How did the Philistines respond? They showed up with shock and awe. Remember the phrase shock and awe from the first Gulf War? <laughs> All the tracer bullets? <laughs> all night on the TV, it was shock and awe. And that's how the Philistines respond. They bring, it says, 30,000 chariots. We don't read of any chariots on the side of Israel. 30,000. So there are, we know that there are maybe at most 3,000 men in this army. 30,000 chariots on the Philistine side. 6,000 horsemen. Again, we don't hear of any horses or cavalry on the side of the Israelites. Foot soldiers, it says, like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. So, I don't know, those images from the Lord of the Rings movies with the, the, huge, the huge armies rolling in and you're just a little hobbit. That's really what, what this is like. Here's what happens to Israel's courage and their defenses. It completely falls apart. 
almost completely. Seeing that they were vastly outnumbered and outgunned, the people, it says in verses six and seven of chapter 13, hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. They went into hiding. Others, we learn, desert Saul and flee the country altogether, crossing the Jordan to get out of the country. I mean, they get way out. They just leave. Later on in, this, in, the, in the passage, we learn that some Hebrews defected and joined ranks with the Philistines. So some of the hobbits go out of the town and <laughs> start fighting the, their own team. Saul, to his credit, holds his ground at Gilgal with a small and trembling force of just 600 men. So he manages to retain 600 men with him and he holds his ground. However, these 600 men were weaponless. The Philistines, as basically an occupying army, had so worked things that they prevented the Israelites from forging weapons. They owned all the blacksmiths and they forbid the Israelites to have their own blacksmiths. They had to come to the Philistines for any tools. The Philistines, and they had to pay handsomely for their tools, but no swords were allowed. There were only two swords among these 600 uh, soldiers, Saul and Jonathan, they had a sword. So in the midst of this is when Saul makes his great mistake as a king. The thing that really re- just, got f- because of which God takes his kingdom away from him and his dynasty. Samuel the prophet is, is expected on the seventh day of this uh, standoff. He says, Saul, I will arrive on the, on the seventh day. Wait for me. What he meant for that, by that is wait for me. I, we will offer sacrifices to the Lord. We will seek the Lord together, his blessing and his deliverance. Wait for me. Saul does not wait. He wakes up on the seventh morning. Samuel is not there. He's desperate. He's afraid. And he goes ahead and he offers the sacrifices. And God is, Samuel shows up later and is like, Saul, I mean, moments later, Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? And he announces to him that because of this, God has taken his kingdom away from him. All of this is the setup for Jonathan's incredibly bold, audacious action in chapter 14. It was a dark day for Israel, but God was gonna dramatically turn things around real quick through one humble, faithful man. Let's read the account of it together. This is chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. It's God's word and it is eternally true. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sinah. 
The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. You made me lose my place, Don. Where am I? Thank you. Twelve. And Jonathan then said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within a half of a pharaoh in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at the time with the sons of Israel. While Saul, Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. This is the word of the Lord. So let's look first of all at Jonathan's idea. He's sitting here, he's part of the, the Israelite camp, a small band of 600 men, not very many weapons among them, no, not much power or hope against such a vast force, and he has an idea. He says to the man who's carrying his armor, come and let's cross over to the Philistine garrison that's on the other side, verse one. Jonathan's idea was to take himself, his lone sword, his young companion, and an attempt an attack on Philistia's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and soldiers as numerous as the sand is the seashore. That's, that's his plan. It's added that he did not tell his father. 
<laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Nor apparently did he tell anybody else. We see that in, in the second half of verse 3. One commentator suggests that the reason for this is because he knew, of course, that he would get no support for such an insane enterprise or idea. But Jonathan had faith for this. He had faith for this engagement. And that faith was not blind. It had a sound, wise, and godly logic to it that he lays out for us in the passage. You know, one of the principles of just war, how do you determine whether a war is just before God, legal, in a, in, a, in a godly sense, according to God's word, a just war. One of the principles is a war can only be just if it's fought with a reasonable chance of success. Deaths and injury that are incurred in a hopeless cause are not morally justified. That's a long-standing pillar of the set of criteria with which we judge whether a war is just or not. That there has to be a reasonable chance of winning. Was there anything like a reasonable chance of winning in this, not if you look at it according to the eyes of the flesh. That's not how Jonathan looked at it. Here's how he reasoned. In verse six, he sizes up his opponent's strength with faith. He refers to Israel's enemies as what? Uncircumcised. These thousands that have come up against us are not part of the covenant. They do not live under God's blessing and protection. They do not have him for a father, as a defender, as a shield, as a warrior. God is on our side and not theirs. He sizes up his own side's comparative power to the Philistines in faith as well. He says, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. God does not need us. He doesn't need a huge amount. He doesn't need a huge team to get the job done. If you see with faith and you understand armor bearer who's on our side, the holy God of Israel, the one who breathed life into man and who can snatch it right back. He's, he's not constrained by our smallness. John Knox once famously said, a man with God is always in the majority. And that's true. Now Jonathan is reasoning this way. He's looking at this situation with faith. That's, that's faith. You might say it's chutzpah, but it's faith. But he's not presumptuous. I think this is a wonderful thing that he throws in here. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. <laughs> it's also faith, but it's humble. It's humility. It's, it's just lovely. He's, it's like he's saying to his armor bearer, I mean, he may be pleased to work for us today. Let's give him a try. He's certainly not required to. And whenever we, whenever we baptize children, and we claim God's promises in their behalf. We try 
to remind ourselves and the congregation and the parents that nothing we're doing is any kind of guarantee. Nothing we're doing is any kind of way where we, we manipulate God to do what we want him to do. He's God. He is in control. No promise that he has made must, in order for it to be true, it doesn't have to be true in every particular. Jonathan knows this. And so he says, perhaps he will work for us today. It's remarkable faith all around. But did Jonathan have any reason to hope or believe that God would work for them? He had a couple of amazing promises from God from the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. And I want to think that Jonathan was familiar with this. Here's what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Here's what he said through Moses in Deuteronomy 28 verse 7. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. Did you catch that in the account? That when they melted away and they were here and there. They had no unified front anymore. The army scattered. They, they fled seven ways. These were promises given to Israel pertaining to their situation. Has God given you and me to his church any kind of similar pledge or promise? Reason to be optimistic and hopeful. James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that amazing? Lucifer. Resist the devil, my child, and he will flee from you. Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Romans 16, 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is probably one of my favorites here. 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We have every reason to believe that God will fight for us, that he will give us the victory. We have every reason to throw ourselves into, the, into battle for him, to risk it for him, because he has given incredible promises to us as Christians and as the church. So what are you doing with those promises Where's your risk? Where's your zeal? The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous is bold as a lion. Are you bold? Jonathan's faith in God's promises didn't just motivate him to act. It didn't just, he didn't just help him conceive of a plan, but it also informed his strategy, the way he went about enacting the plan. This is to me, the most amazing thing. Jonathan basically shoots himself in the foot in every conceivable way from a strategic view or standpoint. So look at this. His, his tactics defy all military logic. 
First of all, he starts by proposing to give up the element of surprise. Surprise is a huge advantage in warfare. He starts by giving it up. He says, behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. Verse eight. (laughs) Hi guys, me and my armor bearer here. Then he determines not to engage the enemy if, they, if the enemy agrees to abandon their strategic advantage of the high ground. Everything is referring to them being up and there's like this cliff that has to be scaled. And Jonathan says, so armor bearer, here's the sign. If they decide to come down to us, giving up their advantage, we will not engage them. If they refuse to come down, we will go up. (laughs) Going up in battle is the hardest job. Nobody wants to have to go up in battle. So what is Jonathan doing? He probably could have persuaded them to come down and chase him. What is he doing? He's giving up every strategic advantage. He's either nuts or he's jealous for God's glory. He's putting himself in a situation that if God doesn't work, it's hopeless. I want it to be absolutely clear to ourselves and to anybody who hears about this that if God delivers us, God delivered us. Do you trust the Lord's strength like Jonathan trusted the Lord? The numbers, the weapons, the tactics that God has given us, brother and sister, for overcoming the world and our sin are pretty puny, really. Start with the soldiers themselves, you and me. We don't have a lot of strength. You think about the power of sin and temptation. You think about fighting that on your own. Not a lot. Not a lot of power, not a lot of victory there. Remember what Paul says about the church. He's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says, Consider your calling, brothers, that there's not many among you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and also not many. What about the arsenal that God has given us to fight with? What weapons do we have in our, in our gun safe? Prayer, preaching, pleading, repenting, blessing, serving, loving, forgiving. Those are weak things. No ICBMs, no mainstream media outlet, No tomahawk missiles. Very few, if any, celebrities, senators, college presidents, captains of the high school football team. Consider your calling, brothers. Why has God chosen you and me? You remember what he says? I can't remember where this is. It just popped into my head. But there's a wonderful example, at least one, when he reminds Israel why he chose Israel. Because you were the least of all the nations. That's why I chose you. 
so that I could show myself strong and your weakness. That's the same thing with you and me. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1 to say, the weak things of, of the world, God has chosen these things to shame the things that are strong. And the base things, the despised things, God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may bring to nothing the things that are. That's why you're here. You're a weak little nothing. So that God can bring to nothing the things that are. Bring down the wise and humble them. So he can show himself strong and glorify himself. So don't despise your smallness, your weakness. Don't despise the smallness and weakness of your team, God's church. It's easy to despise the church. God has chosen her. In our scripture, our Bible reading plan, I will go ahead and fully admit that I've been getting behind. Curtis Cook has been poking at me. Thank you, Curtis. He keeps, did you know you can keep tabs on people? <laughs> Curtis figured it out. <laughs> anyway, recently in the, in the Song of Solomon, the church, which is an allegory, it's a lot of things, but it's an allegory about the church and the church's groom, the Lord Christ. And in there, the church is described as an as terrible as an army with banners. If you look at on the surface, according to the flesh, you and me are not as terrible as an army with banners. But God sees us that way, and he would have us esteem the church that way. We are terrible as an army with banners. If we're fighting with the Lord's power and strength and might, The beautiful response of Jonathan's armor bearer is seen in verse seven. Everybody needs a friend like this. Oh my goodness. Oh my. His armor bearer said to Jonathan, do all that's in your heart. Turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. Every man and woman of faith needs a friend like that. We have incredible battles that we engage every day, starting with our own battles, right? Our own struggles, struggles against our sin, temptation, struggles in our homes with our children, with our spouses, struggles at our workplace, warfare. We're all engaged in battles. It's exhausting, it's tiring, it's lonely. And we all need, a, we need an armor bearer. Someone who will say, brother, I'm with you. Sister, I'm with you. You turn yourself against that enemy, that foe, and I'll, I'll be there with you at your side. Since we all need that, yeah, everybody's nodding their head at me. Since we all need that, what did Jesus say to do? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You be a friend like that to somebody in this room. Everybody needs that kind of friend. You need that kind of friend. So be that kind of friend for somebody. It's, it, I think it's significant that this was not Jonathan alone. It's, I've been saying that it's significant and it's not like a million people 
<laughs> behind Jonathan, but it's also significant that it's not Jonathan alone. We're not made to fight alone. We need encouragement. We, 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 may, we need fellowship. We need the strength that God gives us through one another. So give it. Be an encouragement and a strength and a help to somebody in this church. Be their armor bearer. What was the outcome of Jonathan's faith? So he proposes this daring commando mission. He reasons for it from faith in God's character and his promises. His armor bearer consents to join him and off they go. And as agreed, they reveal themselves to the Philistines who respond by taunting them. Thank you, Don, for laughing. That's what those were. Those were taunts from the Philistines. Behold, the Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And so the signs come about, the signs that Jonathan and his armor bearer had agreed to happen, and Jonathan confirms that God is with us. Let's go up. But notice what he says. This This is an incredible thing. He says in verse 12, Come up after me, armor bearer, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Jonathan. He doesn't even say the Lord has given him into the hands of you and me, armor bearer. He says he's given him into the hands of Israel. Jonathan, for all his zeal, for all his incredible faith, which is superior to most, is just a churchman. He's just part of a team, serving the Lord. It's all in humble service of the group of God's people. And brothers and sisters, if God has given you a measure of extraordinary this or that, whatever it is, intellect, faith, mercy, generosity, it's not so that you can be proud of it or get glory for yourself. It's for the good of the body. So give it. Self-forgetfully, like Jonathan God has given, us, given these people into the hands of Israel today. Let's go up and take it. As Jonathan and his armor bearer get up to the top, they fight their way successfully through 20 men in short order, and this little skirmish, remarkable in of itself, turns the tide of the whole situation. The trembling that's mentioned in verse 15 certainly indicates fear in the camp. There was a trembling in, in, in the camp or whatever it says in verse 15 and there was trembling elsewhere in the field. I don't know, it was, maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was just the sound of soldiers in confusion. But there was, it's described as a trembling. Certainly it must have been taken as a bad omen, this little initial success of Jonathan against 20 men in short order. It's like, Likely this, for a very superstitious people, the Philistines, this would have been seen as a bad sign. (laughs) And it would have likely led to and infect the whole army very quickly. Whatever the quaking means, an earthquake or just fear or confusion, regardless, Israel was victorious that day. The enemy was routed and pursued And it was as dramatic a reversal of fortunes as you'll find in scripture. 
really incredible. So what do we learn from it? In order to learn the lessons that we need to, that we need to learn here today, we have to, we have to make a transition. We have to hear what's being said and we have to understand how to apply it to ourselves. And it's important to realize that God has not given to his church the sword. He gave the sword to Israel along with the spiritual authority. But in the gospel age, under the reign of Christ, the church does not have the power of the sword. We don't enact wars. We don't punish people with the death penalty. We don't put people in jail. We don't have those powers. Those powers exist and they're legitimate and they're from God, but they're not held by us as a church. Some people in our church from time to time have responsibility in the sphere that does carry the sword. And sometimes each of us, might, we might get drafted into service of those who have that authority to fight a war. But as a church, as individual Christians, this is not our mandate. It was Israel's mandate. These Philistines were parts, one part of those peoples which Israel was to drive out of the land and destroy. So they had every right to be engaging in combat, mortal combat with their enemies. You and I have no such right or mandate from God. Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we have a real struggle, but it's not against flesh and blood. What is it against? It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual powers. We struggle against them. And we're called to struggle against them, but not with a physical sword to engage them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, we are destroying what? Speculations. We're destroying speculations. And every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our mandate. We go into all the world, we, teach, we preach the gospel, we teach men to obey the Lord Christ, and then we, as we do it, we're engaging with hearts and minds. And the tools that we have to do that with are very different than physical swords. We have, we have a sword, the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing place between soul and spirit. This is our mandate. We engage people and ideas. We engage hearts and minds. How do we do it? With the word of God and with prayer. (laughs) These are our tools. These are our weapons for our warfare. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. It's uh, It's not with carnal weapons. It's with spiritual weapons, prayer and pleading. That's really all we have. We have prayer and pleading. Who are our enemies? 
Nancy Pelosi? Well, yes. In many ways, yes. But more so, the spiritual forces of wickedness working behind and in and through her. What about enemies closer to home? Colleagues at work? Bosses? Clients? Family members? Sometimes husbands and wives? So-called teachers and leaders of God's flock who are unfaithful? Disgruntled former church members? All of these sometimes are enemies but more so the spiritual forces of wickedness that are working behind and in and through them. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but people can do us real harm. And people have to be opposed and engaged, resisted. But we must remember what? I think this is key. What were you once? God has this amazing habit of turning enemies into friends. Would we make room for Nancy Pelosi here if she repented and sought the Lord? I hope we would. I think we would. I've seen us do amazing things with the help of God's spirit, making room for sinners. We've made room for each of you. (laughs) You've made room for me. We've been enemies of Christ. And God subdued us. How did he do it? With his word. What are you doing with the weapons that God has given you to fight with? He's given us his word and he's given us prayer. The Bible is our sword. This is, the, this is the offensive weapon in the armor of the Lord passage in, in Ephesians 6. The offensive weapon. Most of the other items are defensive, protection. The one offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We have a lot of ways in which we try to engage people. We try to nice them into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you know? I'm all for being nice. Yeah, let's be nice. Don't be a jerk, okay? There I said it. Don't be a jerk. But that doesn't have any power. Niceness has no power. There is only one thing that has power. That is the word of God, and it has incredible power. It can cut to the secret places of a heart. It cut to yours. Do you have any faith? Do you ever get that sword out of its sheath in, in relationships, at your workplace, at school, with your colleagues? Does that sword ever come out of its sheath, even a little bit? Have faith for speaking God's word to people. It's powerful. Quote scripture. Talk to them about what God has said. Is there any thus saith the Lord in your relational vocabulary? What about prayer? Prayer is the way we enlist the help 
of the creator of the universe, the captain of the hosts of heaven. Do we spend any time on our knees praying for revival, praying for power, praying for our God-hating boss? Our friend who doesn't know the Lord. Do we spend any time praying that God would give us help as we seek to love them? I want to talk just for a minute about love. In our Proverbs study, which turns out to be a really, so we, on Wednesday mornings early, I've been meeting, Lucas and I have been meeting with some of the young guys, mostly the single guys. It turns out that's a really good place to um, get ideas for sermons. <laughs> well, we were looking at, in Proverbs chapter three, in the early verses of chapter three, Three, verse three, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. I was reading the commentator that I most admire about that verse, and he drew our attention to a number of Old Testament verses where kindness and truth, or loving kindness and truth, are held as pairs, as attributes of God. Like these things together is who God is. He is loving kindness and truth. He is truth and loving kindness. And, and here Solomon is telling his son, bind these things around your heart. You want to be like God? Have these attributes. Hold them together. Hold them in balance. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. And we were talking about how we, if we're going to have any of these qualities in ourselves, we're going to tend to have one at the expense of the other. And we went around the room and we were talking about, which one are you? Are you more like a truth warrior or are you like a loving kindness and compassion sort of person? And we all tried to self-identify. That's a good exercise. It is not enough to love the truth, to defend the truth, to advocate for the truth and fail to love people. We are dealing with people. Imagine that you were once an enemy of God. Persuade yourself. Appeal to yourself. Love that man yourself. That woman yourself over there. Don't despise them. Pity them. Love them. Sometimes they have to be opposed because they're doing damage. They're speaking lies. But as you oppose them, love them. Have a heart for people. As you wield the sword of the Lord, do so in love. Now the weapons God has given us in, in the church, what I'm trying to do here, preaching, pleading with people, teaching and discipling people. These are puny things. But what does Paul say that they are? They are mighty through God. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So yes, brothers and sisters, we're weak. 
The weapons of our, for, of our warfare are not impressive, but they are mighty, and God is powerful. God is not restrained by our, our smallness, our weakness, our puniness. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe, and are you ready to act on those words? How do you know that God hasn't put us in this town at this time in the coming few days to bring revival through our witness to this town? How do you, how do you know that he hasn't done that? How do you know that he doesn't desire to transform and reform Bloomington? You know what IU was made for? To train pastors. And it'd take a lot of work to turn back the dial. (laughs) So that God's word was at the top and submitted to and loved and honored. How do you know that that's not what he intends to do? Jonathan seemed to know what God intended to do against the Philistines. How do you know that God does not desire to reform his church nationally through you and me, through our example, through our writing ministries, through our podcasts? It's easy to despise these things. You know, a lot of things we do don't get a lot of traction. Let's pray. Let's pray that God would use them and that God would bring great change, dramatic change in our day. He may want to do so. How do we know? Let's give to him our puniness. Let's give to him our little obedience. Let's put God to the test. You take a risk for God this week. Love somebody with God's word. Dare to walk too far out on the limb of obedience. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give us faith, the faith of men like Jonathan. Thank you for his example. Help us, Father, to see with the eyes of faith and as we estimate the challenges before us, the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us and our relative power to them. I pray that you would help us to see as we ought to see and to remember that you are on our side and that you have given us wonderful promises. Help us to use the tools that you've given us to use and to use them faithfully and well. And I pray, Father, that you'd give us hope and expectation that through these small things, these humble acts of obedience to you and of faith, that you will work, you will bring about change, that you will be our victor. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.